good morning. It's good to, to see all of you here again today to worship the Lord. And um, my name is Jacob Yarbrough, and I serve as one of the elders here. And uh, this morning I'll be reading uh, the scripture passage, and uh, we're reading again from the book of Malachi. And I'll be reading from Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And I invite you to follow along with me in your, your copy of the Word or your cell phone or your iPad or whatever, whatever it is that you're using to read God's Word. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. And against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. And thank you for your patience. Jacob. Good morning, guys. How are we today? Doing all right? Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving week coming up. And if you travel, be safe. And I hope you avoid the holiday gunk that seems to be going around right now. Um, But thank you for being here this morning. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to stay there in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 6. As you probably know, this fall we've been going through the the minor prophets. We're spending the fall semester going through three different minor prophets of the Old Testament. We spent two weeks going through the book of Obadiah, the the shortest book in the Old Testament. We spent four weeks going through the book of Haggai. Haggai, in a word, is mission. God comes to a man named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And this is our fourth week in the book of Malachi. So we are in our eighth week in this series. And we'll spend probably two or three more weeks going through the book of Malachi. And as you probably remember, the book of Malachi is broken up into six different disputes, six different, essentially, arguments between the nation of Israel and between God. Dispute number one is over the genuine nature of God's love. In other words, what? Does God really love Israel? Let me just ask. We've probably all 
ask that question. Does God really care about me? Does God really love me? How can I know for sure? We see that in Malachi chapter 1. Dispute number 2 is over the issue of their genuine worship. They are sacrificing before a holy and perfect and loving God. They are sacrificing lame and blind animals. Dispute number 3 is over the issue of marriages, that they are discounting, discarding their marriages to marry the daughters of foreign gods. And then today, dispute number four goes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. It follows the pattern of the other disputes. Goes from, uh, dispute four goes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And the discussion, the dispute, the argument between the nation of Israel and God today is over the issue of justice. The issue of justice. Bad people getting what they deserve and good people getting what they deserve. We, as human beings, are obsessed over the idea of justice and its opposite, the idea of injustice. That we love to see the justice, that people getting what they deserve, and praise the Lord, we as Christians don't get what we deserve, amen? Okay, I'm just saying, okay. So, and then we hate the idea of injustice. No matter where you end up on the equation, let me just put a name out there that demonstrates how much we can't stand the idea of justice and injustice. What happened on October 3rd, 1995? It was when O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Okay? That name, O.J. Simpson, itself creates an emotional tension. It demonstrates our desire, our wants for those who are wrong to be punished and those who are right to be rewarded. But we um, especially are obsessed with the idea of justice when it's someone that has harmed us. Someone in our past that did us wrong and we haven't seen the Lord deal with them. And so we become obsessed with that idea. And that event can become what I would say a splinter in our soul. It is a wound that if we leave unmended, it continues to fester our entire spirit. I, uh, I got permission to share this story, but I won't say any names. This week, a, a lady came to me and was talking. We were talking about justice and people getting what they deserve, and especially people that have harmed us, that they would especially get what they deserve, okay, justice. And uh, this lady, I got permission to share this story, and she said that, Every time in Madison County that the tornado sirens would go off, she would pray that a tornado would go through her husband's ex-wife's house, okay? <laughs> that tells you that there is a, a wound or there's something in the past that she seeks to make right. We all want that desire. We all want the righteous to be rewarded and the evil to be punished. And that kind of grates on our soul. And that's what we see in the nation of Israel. They want those that are sorcerers and adulterers, those who oppress the poor, those who are evil in their eyes, to be punished. And then they're looking at their own circumstance and wondering why things aren't a little bit better. So they go before God, they make some accusations before Him, and they desire to see uh, justice served. So if you have your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 2. We go from verse 17 to chapter 3, verse Six, I'm not sure who put that chapter division there, but we probably need to talk to them only 1,500 years ago or so. 
But in dispute number four, Israel feels not only that, that there ha- isn't justice served, but that God, in a sense, has neglected them. But God reassures them today that he will take care of the problems and the wounds that they want to see, see taken care of. And so to give you a brief preview of our passage today, dis- today is dispute number six is over this issue. It is the fourth of six arguments for the nation of Israel and God. And um, as I was... You know, studying this book, and one of the nice things about teaching the Word of God is that you really get to understand things, you really get to see the Scripture for what it is. And as I was kind of studying this passage this week, I realized that this whole book really talks about a genuine relationship with God. I mean, if you've been walking with God for any length of time, then I would imagine you have struggled over the nature of His love. That, wait a second, God, you say that your love is inseparable, that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. But then when I live in the tragedies and the trials that I face, you know, where are you? The word of God seems inconsistent with what my reality might be. That if you've been walking with God for any length of time, you have struggled with the nature of his love. And you've also struggled with the nature of worship. That it just seems like people in the world, they don't, it doesn't really matter how you live. That God will just reward you for how you live, no matter what happens. That God doesn't really care about me worshiping God on my daily basis. He doesn't care if I bring in my best, but I can kind of just scoot by. That God doesn't really care about the nature of my marriage, the nature of my most intimate relationships. It seems to be that God just is absent. He is neglectful from our everyday life. If you've walked with God for any length of time, then the book of Malachi should be ringing true because we all at times question the nature of his love, question the nature of our worship, question the nature of our most intimate relationships, our marriages. And today we all the time look at the world and wonder if God cares about the evil and the injustice that we see on a daily basis. But it gets more personal than that. It was actually in dispute number four. That we not only wonder if God cares about the sin and the wretchedness of mankind out there, but then we also play the victim card from now and again. That the people that have harmed me in my life, does God even notice? Does God care that evil and wrong continue to surround me? And what does God have to say about it? So that's what we see in dispute number four. It's over the issue of injustice or the opposite side of that same coin, justice. And it begins, dispute number four begins in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. And uh, you'll notice that it follows the same pattern as the other disputes. Notice verse 17 with me. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And now you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Now, if you notice here, it follows the same pattern as the other disputes. That God, in a sense, makes an allegation before the nation of Israel. Then they respond or they retort with a question, and then then God answers their question. What's the dispute? What is the allegation that God brings before the nation of Israel? He says that you have wearied the Lord with your words. The word wearied here means to be labored or wronged or to be exhausted in a sense. So God is exhausted and wearied 
by their words, and specifically in this context, by their complaints. They're complaining about their situation. They're complaining that the nations around them, that the people that are living in their land, that they aren't punished more often. Um, But what does Israel keep forgetting? Israel keeps forgetting in the book of Malachi that if they would just be obedient to the covenant of God, if they would just be obedient to the law of God, that they would experience the blessing of the Lord. What is every lesson of every minor prophet in the Old Testament, essentially, is that covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That Israel is the own uh, maker of their own circumstances. That if they really want to see things better, then they should just be obedient to the commandments of the Lord. That covenant blessing requires uh, covenant faithfulness. Can I just say something really quick on kind of a, on a practical basis? Um, we, we oftentimes, in, in Christian circles, we play the victim card a lot. Okay, I'm not going to go too far into there. But, but we say, okay, well, when my circumstances aren't exactly what I want, or if there's trials or pain, we usually chalk it up to two different things. Either that there is spiritual warfare going on, which it could be, or that somebody else is doing it to me. Um, but I think sometimes the issues in our life are self-inflicted. And that God is disciplining us to get our attention. What does the scripture say? That God disciplines those, those whom he loves. So here, in the book of Malachi, it's really a matter of discipline before the nation of Israel. That they are not obeying the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law that God has given to them. That even though that God has deported them to Babylon, and they've been back in the land for 85 years, they still haven't quite gotten the memo that what God really wants from them is obedience. He doesn't really want their sacrifices as much as he wants them to obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. And here we see this allegation of the Lord, that you have burdened or labored, exhausted the Lord with your words. And I would almost swap out the word words with their complaints. Um, the first half of verse 17 reminded me of being a parent. Uh, as any, anybody have young kids in the room, what's your like least favorite thing to do with your children is to go on a long road trip, right? Um, the road trip is the bad part because what happens? They weary you with their words and with their complaints. We were driving to Washington, D.C. I was driving an RV for like 14 hours, and it was, okay, because they wearied me with their complaints. And then notice what they say, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Of course, they're playing, well, what, me? This This is a theme in the book of Malachi. They don't want to take ownership of their own problems. And so God just tells them what's going on, why he, they have wearied the Lord. They wearied the Lord with two different complaints. And that you say, everyone, notice what they say. This is, these are the words that they wearied the Lord with. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and God delights in them. And here is the second complaint, or where is the God of justice? So there are two different complaints here. Complaint number one, I would say, they're saying that the Lord is inconsistent. He is inconsistent. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. But uh, how many of you have ever had someone question your integrity? 
They have made an accusation against you that you have stolen or you haven't acted with up, uprightness. If you are a person of integrity, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel angry when somebody discounts your integrity. What is the nation of Israel doing? They're not only complaining, they're not only wearing the words, but they are accusing the Lord of being inconsistent. That you say, okay, God, that you are good and they expect righteousness, but they are saying here, everyone who does good, evil is good. What are they really saying about the Lord? It's not just that he's inconsistent, but that God himself isn't holy, he isn't righteous, that he delights in evil, he delights in those who do not do good in the sight of the Lord. Um, how do you think that makes God feel? That his chosen nation, that the people that he loves and he cares for, that he's proven his love to them, that they would challenge the very character and the nature of God. The God that I see in the Bible does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That the same God in the Old Testament that is good and righteous is the same God that we serve today and will be the same God of the future. That they are questioning God's essential character. That that he is not holy and pure and good and righteous, but rather he delights in evil. And then notice the second piece there. Where is the God of justice? This is their second complaint. They're, they feel that God is inconsistent, that he says he's holy and righteous, but he lets people in, that are evil around them get away with things. And number two, that he is neglectful. What are they really doing here? They're letting their circumstances determine their view of God. Because they're looking around at the foreigners in their land. They're looking around at the sorcerers and the oppressors that we'll see later on in Malachi chapter 3. And they're looking at them and saying, well, if they are succeeding and I am not, then there must be something wrong with God. Because I am God's chosen people, and the Lord is not blessing me, but he's blessing the foreign nations. That they are looking at their circumstances to determine their view of God. Um, This is not on my notes, but I think we all do that. We all struggle not to let our circumstances determine our view of the Lord. We look at how we feel like God has treated us, and we say, well, God can't be a God of love because I've served him. I go to church every Sunday. I'm faithful to him. I have quiet times. I look at his word, but then my life is falling apart. Be careful not to let your circumstances determine your view of God. And then number two is we, they feel that God is neglectful, that where is the God of justice that God is just letting things happen and he does not care for him, for them. They look around at the world and the wicked are getting richer. The, the wicked are being rewarded. And they're saying, where is the God of justice? But what does the Bible say? That God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the Israel's mind, they have a singular focus of getting what is right. They're wanting evil to be punished and righteous to be rewarded. But it's not really up to them to enact judgment and vengeance. I think sometimes in life we focus 
our attention on those that aren't walking with God, and we say, Lord, that they're not walking with you, but you're rewarding them with their life. So therefore, am I worshiping the one true God? Am I serving him? Can I just say something, friends? Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about the standard and the circumstances and how the world lives. It's easy to be discouraged when you go on Instagram, okay? Because what do you see on there? You see these people that do not acknowledge God, that do not love God, that have nothing to do with him, and then they post on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter about how great their life is, and then we are then tempted to follow the life that they lead. Can I just say something? Um, I've been a Christian for 30 years, I guess. I've been in full-time ministry for uh, more than a decade. I've been in ministry for two decades on a non-paid basis. The longer I live, the more I realize that truly the best life is what God says in the Word of God. No matter what the world says, no matter how the world lives, that truly the best life, the life with the least amount of pain, the least amount of uh, struggle and consequence is a life according to the scripture. So don't let your circumstances let you determine your view of God and how you see others. It's not our job, in a sense, to enact justice. That is the Lord's. Then notice what he says. So they complain to the Lord and then notice what he says in verse, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. God says that he will handle the injustice of the world. He'll take care of those who are wicked. Notice how he'll take care of the sin in the world that they are focused on. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the, Lord, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, that the Lord will talk, take care of the justice and the sin of the world in two different ways, in redemption and in judgment. That's how God takes care of it in the word of God. That he takes care of sin and the injustice of the world by redemption and by judgment. Verse 1, in my opinion, talks about the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ first came to redeem and to pay for the sins of the world, to take care of injustice that way, and then later he will come on as judge. Now, where do I come up with the verse 1 referring to the redemption of mankind? Behold, I'm going to send a messenger. Now, if you notice here in verse 1 that there are two different messengers. The first one is my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. What is that talking about? Who is that referring to? I'm hearing it. It's referring to John the Baptist. That John the Baptist came to clear the way for the Lord. So in my opinion, verse 1 is talking about that God is going to take care of the injustice and the evil in the world by redeeming mankind. By paying for sin in full. And the proof that he will is that he will send his messenger. And then the question I have is, what, what about the second half of verse 1 here? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There are two different messengers. My messenger, who is John the Baptist, and the second messenger is the messenger of the covenant. Obviously, I would say that that is Jesus Christ, right? But then the question is, when does that occur? There's a lot of discussion when he talks about, and the Lord will come 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. It could be referring to when Jesus comes into the temple, but it could also be referring to the future. I take verse 1 to be redemption. So you have my messenger and the messenger of the covenant that Jesus will come and he will take care of those issues when he comes to die on the cross. Um, What is God saying to the nation of Israel right here? That all of the injustice that you see in the world, all of the wrong, all of those that are far from the Lord that you feel like will be rewarded, he is saying to them, let me handle it. What is the it in your life? What is that splinter? What is that wound from your past that you haven't necessarily dealt with, that you haven't given to the Lord, that you're holding out hope that you can one day have a vengeance and justice? We all have those little wounds that we hold on to. But God here is telling the nation of Israel, hey, don't worry about it. Let me handle those in the world, and he will. He handles sin and injustice through redemption, but he also handles it in judgment. Notice verse 2 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Um, What in the world is that talking about? Okay, so verse 1, God takes care of injustice with redemption, and here he takes care of it with judgment. If you notice the very first question, but who can endure the day of his coming? What is that referring to? If you have been here through our series in the Minor Prophets, then you probably know exactly where I'm going, that the day of his coming is talking about the day of the Lord. Now, what Israel can't see in 400 B.C. is that there, is thousands, there are thousands of years between Jesus coming in redemption and Jesus coming as judgment. The day of the Lord, who can, who can endure the day of his coming? That this specifically is talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, as we've talked about, is a period of judgment upon the world. I take it to mean that there is a thousand seven year period of judgment upon the earth. It, the day of the Lord, in my opinion, begins at the beginning of the tribulation and goes to the end of the millennial kingdom. And that during that time period, It says, who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's gold. So my opinion, Malachi 3.1 is redemption, verses 2 through 4 is talking about the day of the Lord, the thousand seven year period, and verse 5 is talking about the great white throne of judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming, who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Wait, the day of the Lord is going to be like a refiner's fire. Now, what does that mean? If you know, how, how do they make, how do they purify gold in that day? And they probably still purify gold this way. I'm not a goldsmith. You can tell me afterwards. I imagine they do. But what would they do with, a, with gold and silver? They would pour it over a hot fire, and then as the metal would melt, the impurities would come up to the top, and the dross would be scraped off, and the gold beneath it would be purified. So the day of the Lord will be like a refiner's fire, that he will purify the world of sin, that there will be a time period in the day of the Lord that they will be refined. But then also the day of the Lord will be like a fuller's soap, that he will purify and that he will cleanse, that no pollution will exist in the millennial kingdom which he establishes on earth. So in other words, what? 
that the people that are around you, the people that you're pointing at to justify that God doesn't love you anymore, that God doesn't care about sin and injustice, that God is evil, that he rewards and he delights in bad, that God will take care of it, not only in redemption, but also in the day of the Lord. Then notice verse 2. You know, if you're Israel, you're excited at the end of verse 2. Because God is going to deal with it. But God is not done. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Well, wait a second. I, I, want, I want those people to get what they deserve, but I don't want to get what I deserve. God here points out the sons of Levi. Who are those people? That these are the priests. That these are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And what have they done? They have allowed the nation of Israel to get away with a lack of genuine worship, a lack of sanctifying their marriages. They have allowed the nation of Israel just to run rampant. So God says, okay, all right. You want me to deal with sin? You want me to deal with injustice? Oh, I will in redemption. And oh, by the way, in the day of the Lord, I certainly will as well. But I'll be dealing with them, and I'll be dealing with you as well. Um, God will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Wait a second. That God will purify the sons of Levi. And then notice the result, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Um, the Levites, the spiritual leaders of the day, have allowed the nation of Israel to get away with a lack of genuine worship, a lack of genuine view of marriage. But what's really the issue? What's really the issue? It's the lack of purity in the sons of Levi. It's the sin in their life. Friends, if you feel far from God, if you're looking at the world, wondering if God even cares, well, maybe that there is an impurity in your own life. That Friends, listen, we are quick. Can I just speak a little bit? And maybe uh, <laughs> this is a little convicting. Maybe the Spirit of God is. We're so um, quick to point out other people's problems and so slow to see our own. It would be easy for the sons of Levi here to say all those sorcerers and all those adulterers, all those oppressors, they're all wrong. But the Lord is not just concerned about taking care of that, but he's also concerned about the purity in the life of the sons of Levi, the spiritual leaders of the day, that God will handle the injustice of the world. And friends, listen to me. We should let God handle it. We are not judge over other people. We should not seek our own vengeance. What does it say in Romans 12? Never pay back evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That there is something, I, I promise, if you're, if you're older than like three years old, then there's, some, there's a splinter in your soul. That there is a wound that somebody put there and that has sat there. And it's just festering and it's causing you to question not only them, but also the goodness and justice of God. Because in your mind, God hasn't dealt with it because I have a splinter. I have a wound from the past. What is God saying to Israel? Let him handle it. And he will. In redemption and in judgment. So I see verse 1 is redemption. Verses 2 and 3 
talks about the day of the Lord. And then in verse 4 and 5, he talks about the great white throne of judgment. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. In my opinion, that's the great white throne of judgment. If you have the day of the Lord, I take it as eschatological terms. It is a time period of a thousand seven years. It begins at the beginning of tribulation, goes through the millennial kingdom, and at the end of the millennial kingdom, this will happen. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift. And all those people that you think God doesn't care about, that God lets them get away with, that God rewards evil, Swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Again, Israel here is quick to point out other people's faults, but not their own. And what God is saying to them is, let me worry about that. Let me worry about the injustice of the world and he will handle it. That's what we see here in Malachi chapter 3. He will take care of it in the purifying process in the day of the Lord. And he will take care of it with judgment in the great white throne. God will handle it. You worry about yourself. But how do we know that God will take care of it? You know, what, what, what proof do we have that God will actually do what he says? That one day he will take care of all of the evil in the world. That all of the promises of God that we hang on to in this world, how do we know for sure that he will fulfill his word? Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That the same God that gave him the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that will continue to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel today and into the future. The same God that you believed in as a child, that you trusted in for eternal life, that that same God will continue into the future and all the promises that he's given to you will be fulfilled. That if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and you are looking forward to eternal life, amen, praise Jesus, hallelujah, get me out of here, okay? Just make sure I can bring my, my family with me, okay? You know, get me out of here. That all of the promises and hopes that you have, that you've placed in God, will come to pass. Why? For I, the Lord, do not change. He is the same. He is immutable. He is sovereign. He is good. He is love. He is caring. Amen? That listen, friends, do not let your circumstances change your view of God. But we all let it, right? We all, hey man, been there. I mean, I, I don't plan to talk about this story too long, but eight years ago, I lost my firstborn son. You don't think that that made me question the very character of God? If you live long enough, you will experience tragedy. All the people in the room say amen. And when you face circumstances that you don't understand, that when you see injustice in the world, that you say, God, I, I, I've followed you my whole life. You know, I went to seminary and I've gone to church and I've served you. And, and, and Lord, why me? And why are these things happening to me? Let God handle those questions. Let him handle the splinters and the wounds in your life. And he will because he does not change. To the same God in the Bible, it's the same God we worship here, and will be the same God who executes justice 
and righteousness and goodness in the day of the Lord and the great white throne of judgment and the new heavens and new earth. We know God will take care of the injustice of the world. We know one day he will make all things new. We know God will one day give us eternal life, allowing us to escape from the limitations of the earth and this body. We know one day that God will judge the wicked and the righteous. And how do we know all this will happen is because the God that we serve does not change. What does the scripture say? That he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That the same God that we see in the scripture is the same one that will be there in the future. And so do not let your circumstances determine your view of what you know to be true. That's what's going on in the nation of Israel. When we see injustice and neglect of the Lord, when we feel like God doesn't care, God is absent from our lives, what should we do? Let God handle it, and he will, because he does not change. That's the point. But I want to drill down a little deeper. I, uh, I came up with this point, and, I, and it's a point from the passage that I see. If you have your notes, it's in there as well. But I, I really want to drill down just a little bit. And, and when we question the character of God, what are we really struggling with? May I say it again? When you question the character of God, what are you really struggling with? When you want to take matters into your own hands because someone has harmed you, what are you struggling with? Let me give you a story. So I have three little girls. I have a seven, a five, and a two-year-old. Okay? And my middle child is uh, what I call her is a lovable disaster. Okay? She is, a, she is a walking embodiment of Byron as a five-year-old. Okay? Just a hot mess. Okay? That, that was me as a child. Um, but, you know, if you've had any kids then you know, what, is, what do they always do? Especially if you have two girls, okay? They, 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 they fight, okay? And so what happens is, is my seven-year-old and my five-year-old, they'll be playing with a toy, and my five-year-old will take it from my seven-year-old, and then my seven-year-old has a dilemma, right? She faces a choice, that she can either take matters into her own hands and take it back and smack her five-year-old sister, or she could come get me. Now, when she decides to take matters into her own hands, what is she not doing? She's not trusting her parents to be righteous and just, to actually take care of the problem. When we look to the world, when we struggle with the injustice of life, when we look at our circumstances that determine our view of God, what aren't we doing? We're not trusting the Lord to be who he says he truly is. That's why I feel like this passage is talking about this particular issue, is trusting the Lord. Genuine trust. Let God handle it. It. I'm going to circle that word, it. Let God handle it, and he will. Seen in the scripture, because he does not change. When we look at our circumstances, we're obsessed with our hurt and wounds. We're obsessed with getting even then we're really not trusting God in order to solve the problems of our life. Um, what is the it in your life? I purposely was a little vague here. Let God handle it. What is a splinter in your soul? What is a past wound that you haven't dealt with that continues to fester and is infecting your whole and is affecting the spirit within you? 
What is the it? What is bothering you in a sense? What is that one thing that you just can't let go of? Maybe it is you're struggling to forgive somebody in your life. The question we're answering now is, so what? What is the splinter or thing in your life? Maybe it's someone who has harmed you in the past and that just quite frankly doesn't want to apologize. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I, I'm not perfect, clearly, okay? Uh, my hairline says I'm not perfect, okay? I was perfect 20 years ago, okay, with my beautiful hair, not anymore. Um, you know, I'm not perfect, but one of the things that drives me bonkers is when somebody sticks it to me and then they don't even want to apologize. And, and what really drives me crazy is they'll stick it to me, they know they stuck it to me, they know they were mean, and then they just completely ignore it like it never happened. Anyone else relate to that? Family members do that a lot of times. That, that's a splinter. That's something that's hanging around in your life that is infecting the whole. And that is an area that we want justice over. We look at God and say, God, why haven't you dealt with him yet? You know? Do I have to? Who is someone in your life that you want to apologize, that you want to apologize to you that hasn't? That is an it in your life. Or perhaps the it in your life is the sense of jealousy. The nation of Israel here, I think, really is dealing with injustice, God not punishing the wicked, but I think there's also an element of jealousy, that they are looking at the nations around them prospering, and they are wishing that they had the same. Sometimes the splinter in our life is rooted in jealousy. God, I have served you. I serve at the church. I go to, I go to you know, seminary school, or I, uh, I'm trying to train my children up in the Lord, and then I go on Instagram, and those people that profess to be atheists, they have it better than I do. That's something called keeping up with the Joneses. That can be a little bit of a wedge in your relationship with God. Lord, why don't I have those things? Why don't I have this? Why don't I have this particular blessing? What is bothering you? What lingering issue is in your soul? Um, but if you're, if you if you've lived long enough, then perhaps you're really number three. Maybe the splinter is a sense of, you know, jealousy. It's a sense of not being able to get even with somebody that's harmed you. But maybe um, you're just disappointed with life. That you've served God for a long time and you feel like things just really aren't working out the way you thought they would. I, I'm to the point in my life where I'm... I'm Creeping up on 40. Okay, I don't know if you can tell or not. Okay, um, I know I look 25. Um, it's the gray hair that gives me away. Um, you know, at this point in life, as you get a little older, doors start closing on you. You can't really go back and redo the past. And if you serve God for any length of time, then I, you can just feel that your circumstances convince you that God doesn't really care, that he's just a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. Um, I knew a man one time about my age. He had an informal contract with God. He said, Lord, I'll serve you. I'll put my kids in private Christian school. I make sure that I'm at church every time the door is open. And then he just 
went on that path and he expected God on the other side to give him everything he ever wanted and then things didn't work out quite the way they want he wanted to and then he just automatically started blaming God questioning the existence of God questioning the character of God but in reality he should have just looked at himself <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the source of a lot of his issues we all struggle with all of these things, a lack of forgiveness of people wanting to seek our own revenge, a sense of jealousy of those in the world that seem they have better than ourselves, and a sense of disappointment with the Lord. Friends, listen to me. Let God handle it, and he will, because he does not change. The God that we worship today is still good. He is still loving. He's still in control. He still cares for you, no matter what your circumstances or the people around you might say in your ear. Let God handle it because he never changes. Who do we know God to be? We know that he is pure and that he is righteous and that he is holy. We know that he is sovereign. We know that he is immutable, omnipresent. We know that he is omniscient. We know his character and we know that he never will change. Therefore, we must trust him. We must trust him. Even when life doesn't make sense, we must trust him. Even when circumstances don't match our expectations, we must trust him. Even when God doesn't seem to be punishing evil and blessing those that are far from him, we must trust him. Because he's a God that does not change. Um, there is a different type of splinter here today. Each of us have wounds from a past that we let fester, that we don't give to the Lord. But there's a particular type of splinter that will keep you from God. Um, I'm going to share my story. I don't know if I've shared my testimony in a while. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to one of those backyard Bible clubs, and I prayed a prayer, and I thought I came to Christ, and I was eight or nine years old, and I remember... You know, coming home, telling my parents, hey, I came to Christ, and living in a Christian home, what do they tell you to do? They tell you to get baptized. So some 30 years ago, I was baptized right up there uh, at Calvary Bible Church by a guy named Dr. Ledford, if you remember him. That was 30 years ago. Blows my mind. Okay, that's way long time ago. But this something wasn't right. You know, I, I still didn't feel like I was born again, that it didn't, there wasn't anything that really changed, that I knew the answer to the quiz. How are you saved? By faith in Jesus Christ. I knew the answer to the quiz, but I never was born again. I never actually trusted in Christ Jesus. And there was this something wrong, that there was a splinter in my soul. And a few years later, I'm a young man, and I just remember wrestling. I remember not being able to sleep. I'm not an insomniac, man. I can go to bed, okay? Amen. I'm sorry if you're an insomniac, okay? Uh, <laughs> I had no problem sleeping. And for whatever reason, I couldn't sleep for days on end. And I was like, what is going on? And then I just remember sitting there. I was on my mother's bedroom floor and just feeling that the Spirit of God came to me and convicted my heart to once and for all trust in Christ Jesus. Not just know it to be true, but to believe it to be true. And that day changed my relationship with the Lord, changed my life. Knowing the answer to the quiz doesn't save you. How do you attain eternal life? By believing in Jesus Christ. If that is your answer, 
Great. Wonderful. It's the right one. But if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you've never invited him in, the Spirit of God has not come into you and changed you, made you born again, rivers of living water, then perhaps today that you are not saved, that you are not a Christian, that you are far from God. If you don't have a relationship with God, you feel far from him, I would encourage you to see me after the service, and if you have more questions, pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the example of the nation of Israel. And that we all struggle with trusting you in the midst of our circumstances and letting our circumstances determine our view of you. Lord, I pray that we would trust that you do not change, that you, are, you say you're good, therefore you are good, no matter what we struggle with in our life. And, and Lord, I pray that we would not look at those other people out there as justification for why you know, you know, God is not who he says he is. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That you do not change, so that you are, so we are not consumed. The promises that we trust in you are still in play. Thank you for my church. I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that they would be convicted and that they would believe in your Son. And Lord, thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.